Namaste, everyone. Welcome to Dharma Talk. I'm your host. I'm Shiv Baba. And today we're going to talk about fear and anger. Because I think this is a huge factor in our lives. And I really think about all of the stuff that we just we collectively discuss on a given day in traditional media, social media, whatnot. How often do we discuss the way, what ro- the role that anger has in poisoning our experiences and our relationships? So today we're going to talk about anger. And, you know, you see quite a bit of reporting these days about uh, PTSD. It really is a very important issue. It, it, it affects a, a whole lot of people. But you don't see enough discussion of the mundane fear that permeates the lives of, of millions of people. Uh, for a lot of people, fear is making the decisions and not them. So we're going to talk about fear and anger and the insidious ways that they creep into our daily lives. Also, we're going to talk about what's behind the fear and what we can actually do to start defusing these fear bombs that are poisoning consciousness with whatever frequency. So, we know from Dharma, we know from, from multiple traditions, multiple sources, that attachment for a node of divine consciousness uh, that's living in duality. Attachment, the way we, we sense attachment is pain. That's where pain actually comes from, for the most part, is attachment. So when I feel a pain sensation, what that's actually alerting me to, that's feedback from the universe telling me that I am experiencing an extreme of attachment. Let's look at some of these ways that these attachments can drive fears. Um, Karma fear is the first category that we should look at. Now, I'm not talking about fear of of a deity punishing someone for for breaking religious laws. That's, That's a different mindset. What I'm talking about is we are nodes of divine consciousness. As such, we have certain faculties, certain resources. One of the things that's built into us by nature, all of us, is kind of a, a sixth sense, a karma sensor. So if my karma is darkening, I'm, I'm going to feel a fear response, and maybe I won't know where that fear is coming from. Uh, in psychology, uh, I think they used to call it free-floating anxiety, right? Well, karma fear can be behind that free-floating anxiety. And karma fear, it's not the fear of the retribution of a, of a punishing deity. It's a fear of the natural consequences of actions. So if I go and place my hand... Uh, too close to the fire. I have an immediate feedback from the universe. I have a pain sensation, and I pull back. So the cause and effect are pretty obvious there. Uh, It's easy to replicate it again and again, not that you would want to. Um, But what what about the karmic consequences of more subtle aspects of behavior, where... Um, it may take years for karma to, of, of certain kinds to ripen. But ripen it does. So if, if, if we're walking around feeling this sense of weird anxiety and our karma isn't tended to, then that's one way to remove that kind of fear is to take a systematic approach to improving karma. It, it, you know, we live in a wonderful internet age, and 
since I'm not here to defend a particular perspective or tradition, uh, if you're careful, you can you can use the internet to find traditional sources which talk about different ways to fix your karma. Um, the quick list, of course, is okay. First of all, if you have harmed someone in some way, and there's some kind of a way that you can make it up to them without causing further emotional trauma or harm or whatever, then that's a great start on rebuilding your karma, right? It's like your, your spiritual credit score, and you can rebuild it even if it's bad. So if you feel like you owe someone $600, uh, I think even if you anonymously slip them, send them the 600 bucks, it comes off your account. Um, if, if you can think offhand of some things where you've harmed someone and it's fairly straightforward, uh, and I'm not talking about an apology at all. I'm talking about, this is, that's, a fun, that's a social interaction. I'm talking about a karmic interaction where you actually go in and, and fix what you, you broke. So that's one way of fixing your karma. If you have any of those outstanding, well, talk with your guru or your spiritual advisor. Uh, figure out a way to make it right. And things will, your life circumstances, your consciousness will improve. It's, it doesn't take long to see the sweetening of karma when you've repaired the damage, some damage that you've done, intentionally or intentionally, unintentionally. So then... Once you have all of that cleared out, then there are other wonderful ways to sweeten your karma. Um, they're not all really glamorous, like going to Nepal or to India to a shrine. Start with the people around you, right? Be patient. Don't, don't think about how patient you're required to be. Think about how patient you can be. Be patient. Listen attentively. Repeat back bits of what they're saying to you. Actively listen. That sweetens karma like you can't believe. Um, because you know what's going on there. Someone's telling you about their, you know, they put pansies out in their garden for winter. Big deal. No, that's a node of divine consciousness seeking a moment of union with another node of divine consciousness, you. And the words are about pansies or, 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 you know, what somebody's doctor told them about their condition or whatever. doesn't matter. The words are inconsequential. It's the listening and the focusing of the attention in love on the other. That, that, that wipes away centuries of karma. So if you have, if you are uh, if your karma is sweet enough to have an opportunity to have people in your life that need listening, there's your there's your golden karma ticket right there. You know, in the West, we kind of we have a tendency to want to put numbers on things and quantify things. That's okay. We can do that with karma. There's no, it won't break karma if we think of it that way. It's it's an account. It is. Uh, and there are credits and debits against it. And like any account that's in arrears, if it's tended to properly, it can go back to being a, a good functional account, right? Um, there, as I always mention, there are, some, there are some spiritual techniques that over the, well, really millennia, deities and humans have worked out together. And they're very effective in clearing away vast quantities of dark karma. Vast quantities. And I'm not telling you that because I read it in some book at the New Age bookstore. I'm telling you that because I've experienced it. Um, during my time of Tibetan Buddhist ascetic practice, I was guided through the process of building a small stupa and filling it with the correct tiny scrolls that had the, the correct mantras written. Um, 
thousands of tiny scrolls that had to be written and rolled a certain way and placed within the, the hollow stupa. And then the stupa was consecrated. And if you've ever experienced something like that, you don't have to wonder if there was an effect. There was a pronounced, strong, immediate effect. Uh, and I'm always up for doing that. It's, it's a wonderful experience. Uh, the puja, right? In my case, primarily the Shiva and Kali pujas. But there are, there's a puja for every deity. So if you have a different, if you're having a, a passionate love affair with a different deity, Puja, as, as far as I know, they all love a good Puja. Um, puja is, hmm, imagine two old friends that for many, many years have lived in Manhattan, uh, a few blocks from each other, and every Saturday evening they meet at the same coffee shop uh, to have the same coffee and maybe the same uh, 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 sweet bread or something uh, as they've been having for 40 years. Maybe they play the same game of chess or the, they have the same conversations over and over and over. Um, and anyone who's raised a, a young child knows how a child loves ritual. The, the most familiar ritual, I guess, the most ubiquitous is the ritual of the bedtime story. Right? Uh, well, uh, Johnny, it's time for bed. Oh, well, can I have a story? Well, sure, you can have a story. And so the story is read while the child lays in bed. And there, there are certain, there's a, there's a liturgy to this, right? The, the, the story is read by the, the parent, uh, and then it ends, and then the child makes a comment, and then the mom makes a comment about the book, and then she says goodnight, and, and kisses are exchanged, and the light goes out. Interactions with a deity can be just like that. And in fact, and you know, I don't think I've ever read anything specifically in the scriptures about Lord Shiva being sentimental. But in a way, imagine this from Lord Shiva's perspective or Lord Hanuman's perspective, right? Or Kalima's perspective. Over the centuries, over the millennia, you've had endless millions of these puja interactions with all of these, these beings that have offered them and love. So just like, uh, you know, maybe you have a song that brings back certain positive emotions or memories. For the deities, they've been receiving these pujas for so long from so many people I think it probably has an emotional sweetness. And then what I found was when I started offering daily pujas, even short ones, uh, I started getting sentimental feelings like that. Shiva became the old friend that I was meeting every day at the same place to do the same thing. And I guess in that way, a friendship with a deity is very similar to the way a friendship with a fellow sentient being here in duality is, right? Um, I think in a lot of cases, it's not written in stone, but generally speaking, uh, a relationship with a deity, the closeness of that relationship is going to be a function of the time you've spent with that deity. And that time you know, you rack up those kind of hours all different kinds of ways, right? By saying the mantra uh, as you're going through your day, the mantra of that deity, uh, by offering a puja that morning, um, a puja and a fire sacrifice on the weekend, um, reading the scriptures about your deity, those are pretty easy to find on Scribd and on, on Amazon Prime. I'm not not plugging those companies, but, uh, and I have no investment in them, but, you know, I mean, they're, they're great sources for ancient texts in a language that, that uh, large numbers of people in the West can understand. So, 
your intimacy with your deity, with your Ishtadevata, is a function of the time you have spent with that, with that deity. I'm sure there are exceptions in the vast ocean of past human experience with deities, but for the most part, you can put that in the bank. So it, you, there are ritual ways to clean karma, and they work. I've tried them. I'm still using them. Uh, something as simple as wearing a Rudraksha mala throughout the day. It can be a very small bead Rudraksha mala. That, that has a noticeable, dramatic effect on, on karma. It sweetens it. Kindness, patience, listening, generosity. You know, you know all of this. You don't need me to tell you. Your, your heart tells you your heart tells you when your, car, your, when your behavior is sweetening your karma. Um, and then there's, the, then there's the karma purification that comes from love, from devotion to a deity. Because when, when you practice devotion to a deity, you begin to, in, in a lot of important ways, become that deity. And what happens to your karma if you're becoming Shiva? What happens to your karma if you're becoming Durga, right? What happens to your karma if day by day you're becoming Lord Hanuman? You're becoming Krishna. So that devotion to a deity when it's serious applied over a, seriously applied over a period of time, is cause, causes the, the worshiper to become the deity, right? Um, so now let's talk about, we've talked about karma fear. Let's talk about attachment fear, just straight up attachment fear. There are two categories of, of attachment fear, right? There's the fear of losing something that I have, and there's the fear of not getting something that I want. And they're both dreadful, aren't they? We've all experienced these. These are needless sources of suffering. Um, I think in the West we walk around thinking, well, there are just certain kinds of suffering we're going to have to endure. There are, but this isn't one of them. This is not one of them, because I get to decide what my attachments are. First of all, in order to do that, I need to see what I've got. What am I working with? What are my attachments? What are my attachments? What am I afraid of losing? Now, it, uh, the, the mind wants to play a trick at this juncture, right? And it wants to say, well, oh, yeah, of course I'm afraid of losing uh, you know, my, my wife or my, my, my children or well, yeah, absolutely, but to to let go of your attachment to someone does not mean that you're dooming something terrible to happen to them. What you're saying is, I'm grateful for this person being in my life right now, and nothing is permanent. So I'm I'm going to love this other being in a way that doesn't involve attachment. How, how does attachment sneak into my relationships with another human being? Um, what was it? Eric Fromm, the great social psychologist, thought, wrote a book about the distinction in perspectives you can have in relationships. You can have a possessive inclination toward relationships where this is my wife and my son and my house and my dog and my friend and my country, right? My, that's possessive. I own. This is mine. Uh, it's just a phrase, but then again, you know, thought and language are pretty closely entangled, so just a phrase isn't just a phrase. This is not my friend. This is another human being that I have chosen to love. This is not my wife. This is a person 
that I've entered into a, a social contract with, yes, but what's important, what defines the relationship is not the social contract, it's the love that I feel for this person, right? So it's no longer my husband or my wife, it's this being whom I have chosen to love. That's a completely different, that's a, that's a, a being perspective instead of a having perspective. In other words, I'm grateful for this person being available to me in my consciousness, but I don't own them. And I don't need to own this person in order to enjoy them. And ironically enough, I may find that when I cease attempting to own and start attempting to experience, the relationship is different, right? And also if I do that, if I start to, to lose an attachment is not to lose a person. To lose an attachment is not to lose a possession. It's losing the attachment to that possession, right? What is the attachment to a possession or a person? What's the root of it? Well, what's happened is I'm a node of divine consciousness with infinite potential. Out of ignorance, though, I've decided that I need to explicitly define my being in certain ways. Well, divine consciousness doesn't have to be uh, uh, described or designed. It just is. So at your core level, you just are. But all of us have these identities that we craft around ourselves. And if it turns out that part of your identity involves an ownership perception of another being, then obviously that relationship isn't just going to proceed on, a, on an exchange of love basis. It's going to be defined by, uh, well, if you own something, then you, you fear losing it. So uh, it's, going to, it's going to color that relationship. Um, so fear of loss is, is, is a fear that can be remedied by dropping the attachments. That doesn't mean losing anything other than losing the fact that you've intermingled some object or some other being in your identity, and it doesn't have to be there. You don't have to be attached to something. And, you know, these relationships they're much, likely to, to, much less likely to go away if one of the people, if, if you're going into that relationship with an attitude of, I'm so grateful to be enjoying this experience of being with this person, and I don't have to change them, I don't have to own them, I don't have to control them, I just have to experience them as they are. And people respond to that marvelously. How would you respond if someone were, were you know, acting to, toward you like this? So what about the other side of the coin? Uh, fear of not getting something that you want. This is an interesting attachment. It's an attachment to something that hasn't happened yet. Um, uh, and there are some problems with this, right? I mean... None of us are really fortune tellers. Uh, well, most of us aren't. I'm not. I never got that city. Uh, but we build expectations, and, and we, we have fantasies that we begin to equate with reality. I would be so happy if I got that job. Or I would be so happy if I could afford to live in that house. And, ah, uh, come on. Let's face it, we're all walking around with, with some of these uh, bizarre concepts in our head. We don't even know that. It might suck living in that house. That might be an awful job. We don't know. We know what our fantasy of that looks like, though. right? So now that I've predicted the future and I know what's good for me, I'm going to proceed to explain, in my case, to Shiva, the consciousness of infinite goodness, I'm going to explain the situation to him so that he can make sure to move the blocks around a little bit so that I can have what I want. Well, Shiva loves me. He helps me all the time, day in, day out. 
I don't, I, I couldn't get through the day without him. But on the other hand, he's never promised me that he would make something happen that would be harmful to me in ways that I couldn't presently understand. So if I ask him, just like a human friend, right? Um, you know, if, if, if you've had too many cocktails and you ask your friend to borrow their car, if it's a good friend, they say no. And your deity is a good deity, whoever your deity is. And your deity is going to say no. So that's pretty, that's okay, right? If you're, if, if you've been on the path for a while, uh, I guess the first step on the path is when you start taking no as, as an answer and being grateful for it, knowing that the best outcome is behind it. And the second step on the path is when you stop asking for things. Uh, that's way, way down the path from where most of us are. So we'll focus, we'll focus on the first part. Uh, a no from your deity does not mean that you have displeased your deity. A no from your deity means, well, think of a very responsible parent, and Johnny wants a shotgun at age seven. No, no, for most Johnnies at age seven, no. It's not, that's not reasonable. That's a terrible idea. Do they not love the child? No, but they're not going to. So I've seen, I've seen things, I've seen circumstances in my own life where the no was the most wonderful love Shiva could lavish on me, whether I understood that at the time or not. Nowadays, I can see, it, I can see the love in a no just the way I see the love in a yes. So fear of not getting what you want. You can let go of that. Ask your deity about it. There's nothing wrong with that. There's everything right with it. But then if the answer is no, don't celebrate a yes more than you would a no. The no's, the no's are full of love and protection. All right, so fear category number three. Identity fear. This one's very subtle. It destroys relationships. I talk a lot about relationships because we're not we're not in this this is not a single player game right this is a this is a what do they call it a massively multiplayer kind of an affair all sentient beings are involved in this game and our relationships with each other are reflections of the extent to which we understand that there is as much divine in the other as there is in me, whatever the other is. Now, maybe the divine is caked up with a, with a bunch of manure and it's a terrible-looking divine right now, but deep down inside, it's the same exact divine as, as is in me. So our relationships and the way we treat each other, unless we're... Uh, you know, hermits in, in, the, in the forest, and that happens, and, and they've got their own ways of dealing with karma. But for those of us that are interacting in society, our relationships with the people around us are our relationships with God in all of God's different bizarre manifestations. Um, so what is identity fear? Identity fear is where you're in a relationship and you get an impulse that kind of says, if I join in or consent with this person, if I have this moment of unity with this person, and I'm not talking about them doing something evil, I'm talking about non-evil stuff, but if I have this moment of unity with this person, this is going to compromise my sovereignty as a human being and my individuality and in my in my uh, dossier of my identity, right, it says that I don't like uh, Judy Garland movies. And I'm at a friend's house, and she enjoys Judy Garland movies on the, on the old movie network. And I say, oh, I don't want to watch that. That's, I don't like that. Well, everything about my consciousness is arbitrary. I mean... You study for a while and you can change every single thing. That's what you learn. It's arbitrary. You're a node of divine consciousness. 
that is adorned and uh, covered in different identity badges that it doesn't really need to have. And one of the identity badges might be, I don't like, um, hmm, I don't like spinach, or I don't like Brussels sprouts, or I love chicken, or I hate Hershey's bars, I like Nestle Crunch. All of these are really identity badges. We think that they're fundamental aspects of our identity, right? But they're not. A fundamental, there's only one fundamental aspect of our identity, node of divine consciousness. Divine spark incarnate in duality and ignorant of its own true nature. So attachment fear, I mean identity fear, can creep into relationships. And you overcome identity fear by giving in. That's right, you win by losing in this regard. You give in. You watch the movie you don't want to watch. Uh, you go to the restaurant you want, don't want to go to. You have the thing that the other person likes. And it's not so much the benefit that you're conferring on the other person. That's a side effect. The benefit is that you're losing identity fear. I am a node of divine consciousness. I am capable of enjoying um, you know, a fine European meal or some rice and dal. Uh, or a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. I've, I'm inhabiting this body right now. I'm a ghost in this machine. Does it really matter what I feed the body as long as it's non-toxic and it's nourishing? These preferences, we... Oh, th there was a pizza company years ago, and they came out with a product called a Meat Lover's Pizza. And at the time, I thought about it. I heard it on a radio station or something in a, in a car. I thought about it. A meat lover's pizza. Or I love, uh, I don't know, what's, I love uh, Armani shoes. Or I love Bordeaux wine. Love? Love is something that's exchanged between nodes of divine consciousness. So a pizza does not qualify. It's not sentient. But that shows, that shows how far we've pushed the concept of hmm, craving and preference, which is ultimately arbitrary, as a function of identity. There are people who think that people who drink Wine that comes in boxes are, are not as good as people that drink wine that comes in bottles. And then there are people who think that uh, wine drinkers, you know, they, they don't know where it's at. They're, they have no concern for their health. They, they identify as kombucha uh, drinkers or organic juice drinkers. It doesn't, it doesn't matter what it is. It's the fact that identity has been conf confused with an arbitrary preference. I don't need to adorn myself with identity badges. It's okay for my identity to completely revert to what it truly is, a note of divine consciousness. Out here to perceive duality and eventually make its way back home. So my identity fear... Um, it's an attachment to an arbitrary self-concept definition, right? It's an attachment to a preference as an identity. I can drop that. So I encountered this when I thought, I thought that this one was put to bed in my life. And then several years ago, I was enjoying an all-night puja with the goddess Kali. Um, and it was dark, and it was cold, and... And yet there was the glow from the, the ghee lamps. And I looked up at the face of the goddess. And she was smiling. The Murti was smiling. We'd been spending hours together. And I said, Mother, what more can I offer you? 
I don't feel there's something between us. What can I, what can I offer? I won't go through the whole story in detail, but it turns out that I had an attra attachment to my jatas. My in the West we call dreadlocks. I'd been growing them for years. Uh, to me, they were a symbol of ascetic identity and identity as a Shaivite, right? But those needed to go on the altar that night before sunrise. And that's when my relationship with Kali began, as I know it now. The head was shaved. The object of attachment was offered on the altar. It was received into the hands of the goddess. And now, now she's a part of my life in a way she had not been. It wasn't that she needed a pile of juttas. It was that she was coaching me to let go of that attachment, you see. It wasn't so much a sacrifice as it was, you know, like a mother teaching a, a baby, a toddler, how to take for the first steps, coaching, coaching. And so now the judges are grown back uh, and the, the relationship with Kalima. Sometimes, you know, my relationship with, with, with Kalima is so different because she's mother, right? So, uh, I think I think that more often than any anyone else, Kalima, that's where the the divine the, the gift of divine tears has has manifested in my my life. Because the intensity of a mother's love on a divine level is overwhelming. It's amazing. So I'm glad. I'm glad that I surrendered that identity fear that was based in attachment. What if it's an attachment to something really good, like your holy jatas on your head? It doesn't matter. It's an attachment. You get unattached. Uh, th this is why the sannyasi wear the saffron garments, though, right? Because uh, in, I think, all cultures, or most, most cultures, what you wear is a huge expression of your identity, right? Um, and this is true for rich and poor, as much as anyone can afford in the West. And, and in India, of course. But sannyasi, they give up the choice of what they're going to wear because there's an attachment to self-expression, identity expression, and fashion. And if you're wearing a, a sadhu uniform, basically, you're going to look like all the other sadhus. Uh, in, in Houston, Texas, a monk wearing saffron looks kind of, you know, uh, weird. But in India, yet another monk with yet another beard, yet more jachas, dreadlocks, you know, it's just another sadhu. So it's an immolation of the identity attachment. And that's... That's when you, when, when you lose an attachment, you lose a source of suffering. So here we have these fears, and we talked a little bit about how to, how to reduce the, the incidence of this fear by changing our attitude for the most part, right? Losing, losing this, this attachment to attachments and at least being willing to look in the direction of, I don't have to lose anything. I don't have to lose the person. I don't have to lose the car. I don't have to lose the house. I have to lose the attachment to them where they're a part of my identity. So... What if you're unsuccess what if the fear of one of these these three kinds sets in and you are not properly armed to deal with it? Uh, well, regardless, you have four four responses that are possible when fear shows up. I call it the four F's of fear. Fight, which is anger, right? And if you watch yourself as you as if you were a third party disinterested observer, watch yourself going through a week, and 
the moments where you feel anger are always, there's always fear underneath that anger. Always. Now there's the righteous anger of Durga as she's going in to fight a demon, right? But we're not Durga right now. We're just nodes of divine consciousness that are making different degrees of progress in shedding ignorance of our true nature. So anger, if you see anger show up, look, at, look for the fear behind it. Just pause for a moment. It won't hurt anything. Where was the fear? Were you afraid of losing something or of not getting something you want? If you find out what the fear was underneath the anger, to address the root fear, the anger will go away. And the anger is a poison. It's an absolutely a poison. There's, I mean, it's unequivocal. Uh, I always try to stick to my experience and what I know as much as possible because this isn't really an academic pursuit. It's a transmission. It's different in nature. So I need to transmit what I've experienced as much as possible. What I've experienced is that I can go to Lord Shiva and say, Lord Shiva, I am experiencing fear that is driving anger. And I know that anger is poison. You drank the poison that was going to destroy the world and it turned your neck blue. Would you please neutralize this anger poison in me before it damage, destroys me? Because anger does destroy things. It destroys relationships quickly or slowly. It destroys careers. It destroys health, right? Because the epinephrine and the cortisol that you secrete when you're angry, we have loads of evidence. Uh, don't need to go into it specifically, but none of it's good. Cortisol and adrenaline are, are uh, uh, absolutely detrimental to the consciousness and to the body. So if you see the anger pop up, go to your deity for help. Help me with this. Show me what fear is underneath this. Second F of the four Fs, uh, flee. So this is a nasty one because it can rob us of potential, right? Uh, maybe, maybe there would be a good possibility of you going to work for a certain company doing a kind of work that is gratifying and remunerative. And you don't apply because you've seen the future. You've gotten the crystal ball out. And you know that it's not going to work. Well, mm, maybe there are plenty of jobs where you wouldn't get hired. But if, if, if there's an opportunity and you can take it, take it. Don't take the flea response. Don't tell the future Get out the crystal ball, make a prediction, regard the prediction as real, have a fear response to the prediction, and use that to flee from an opportunity, right? Or what about a relationship, a friendship? And the other person is selfish and inconsiderate and uh, narcissistic and self-obsessed and talks about themselves all the time. What's going on with that? Why do I want to flee with flee from that? Maybe if this person has shown love to me and I've shown love to them and it's a friendship, maybe I could help them with that without running away from it. But I'm feeling fear. What? That I'm compromising my identity or my sovereignty by wasting time listening to this drip go on and on about something I don't care about. Uh, okay. How about if I abandon that fear and embrace the reality that I am here to love and be loved? And one of the ways I can show love is by listening. I go back to that again and again because it's never talked about in the West. And yet, it's vitally important for your spiritual health. So, fight. I can get angry because I felt fear. And that can be an automatic connection at first before you, you get used to intervening. F fight, 
Lee freeze. So now I'm experiencing fear and maybe I've made a deterministic assessment and gotten the old crystal ball out and I've determined that there's nothing I can do. And so now I'm frozen in terror of an imaginary, you know, prediction. That's not going to take me where, this is not going to lead to me accomplishing the goals that I've set. So what do you do if you find yourself frozen in a state of learned helplessness? And what you really are is you're afraid that there is no solution. So you stop looking creatively at different options. And, and that's a, you know, when you're frozen, uh, you're paralyzed. You're living in learned helplessness. So that's a terrible spot. So the fear stimulus has appeared. I get angry. The fear stimulus has appeared. I run away. The fear stimulus has appeared. And I freeze. I do nothing because I don't think there's any way to fix it. I give up. It's despair. Fight, flee, freeze. Or number four is way better. Faith. Now, the kind of faith that I'm talking about here isn't a belief that the deity is going to mindlessly do my bidding for me. I don't need to believe in that. In fact, that would be kind of a hell realm because what, what about the times I've been wrong in the past? And Shiva just said, oh, well, he asked for it. He's going to get it. That's not a kind deity. Or, or maybe some deities eventually become exhausted with people and, and they, do, they do say that. I don't want to get to that spot. Faith, though. Faith. Faith is being secure in the knowledge that you've developed your relationship with your deity so that right now, during this weak part of your development where you are still ignorant of your divine nature. And so you're self-limited in thousands of different ways. You're like a little baby, and Krishna, Hanuman, Durga, Kali, Shiva, they're helping us with first steps. So this is a faith in a relationship. It's a faith in a belief in the altruism of my deity, of your deity, right? Do I believe that Shiva is fundamentally good, cares about me, values the relationship we've built together, and will help me through things? Well, to start with, that, that does require a bit of a leap, right up at the very beginning. But it's only faith until you get to the first miracle. And then it becomes more and more over time a reaction to the evidence that you've seen that trusting your deity with situations will, will bring you not always to the outcome you predicted or expected or thought you wanted. But if it's your deity taking you there, it'll be a good place. So this is a type of faith as you get further into the process that really is just an acknowledgement of what has been happening with my relationship with this deity so far. And it's been a lot of years and Shiva's never let me down. Again, he's not, he's not my servant. He's not going to be doing my bidding. That's not part of our relationship. It never should be. What is in our relationship is, during this weak time, as I'm discovering my true nature, Shiva will take care of me. Kalima takes care of me. You see? That's what faith is. And it, it just begins, I think, I think that trust relationship begins in those early days of spiritual quest, when you start offering your fears to your deity, and then you watch things come out okay. 
I've seen this in a lot of different lives with people that I've worked with over the years. And this is a constant. So right now, today, if something, if some new circumstance pops up and I noticed a, a fear stimulus inside of me, immediately, by old habit, I say, and I, I speak to Lord Shiva in English and Sanskrit, usually in ritual at the, at the altar, it's going to be Sanskrit, but um, I mean, I'm a native English speaker. So if I were a native Bengali speaker, I would be speaking to Lord Shiva for the most part away from the altar in Bengali. Uh, same goes for, for French or Spanish or whatever. I happen to end it up end up with uh, being a native English speaker. So I, spe I communicate with my deity in English when in stuff like this. And I say, Lord Shiva, I place this matter at your feet. And, and the way... The way I came to that prayer was I thought, you know, I don't really want him to have to dirty his hands with the kind of stuff that I get into. I'm always getting into messes. So early on I decided I'm not comfortable with him dirtying his hands with my problem, but he can solve it if I just lay it in front of him. And he always has, Lord Krishna, I place this matter at your feet. Lord Shiva, I place this matter at your feet. Kalima, my beloved goddess, I place this matter at your feet. Hanuman, my lord of strength, I place this matter at your feet. Lord Shiva, I'm feeling fear right now. I place this matter at your feet. And time and time and time again, the response has always been a positive outcome. And it's kind of fun, just sit back, you pray the prayer, sincerely. You let go of the fear. Trust your deity with the fear. You instantly feel more relieved, and over after a while, you're, you, you know, you're thinking, well, oh wow, it's gonna be fascinating to see how Shiva takes care of this one. And it always is. So, Trust, you know, love of a deity, a relationship with a deity is a function of the time you spend with the deity. If you have drive time, if you have bus time, if you have train time, if you're in a doctor's office waiting room, or if you're shopping for groceries and you don't really have to think all that much about what you're putting in the cart, Om Namah Shivaya, Om Namah Shivaya, Om Namah Shivaya, Om Namah Shivaya. You don't have to have a luxurious, you know, life where you have the freedom to go to the temple every day. You're the temple. The mantra is the is the sacred fire. It's 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 incense rising constantly. That mantra's incense rising out of you, the temple. Sanctify the shopping center while you're buying groceries by secretly saying your deity's mantra. Sanctify the freeway as you're driving around saying the deity's mantra over and over and over and over again. That's spending time with your deity. I, I, don't, I don't mean you're going to have to quit your job and spend 12 hours a day at the altar. Take your deity with you in your day. They're portable. Um, and so, again, I put in my notes... Uh, restate the prayer. Lord Shiva, I place this matter at your feet. It's too simple to work, isn't it? You, you've got to go, let's face it, it's going to take $50,000 worth of traveling through India to figure out any, any of your, your, your life problems. No, it's not. No. Lord Shiva, I place this matter at your feet. It doesn't cost anything. You don't have to be smart. You don't have to be spiritually disciplined. You just place this matter at your deity's feet. Try it and prove that it does not work. Um, so I'm going to share... I've gone through 
some discussion of fear. And this isn't academic in nature. This is transmitted through the lineage. And it's also a function of my experience using the tools that the lineage has provided. And I'm not sure that it matters which lineage. It matters that you have one. But that's another show. Uh, so when I was fairly new on the path, uh, I woke up one morning and I had a bizarre pain in my side. Uh, and I could not do the puja that morning. And that, I mean, that's really serious if it's, if it's that bad. So I called a friend and we went to the hospital and I expected to sit in the emergency room waiting room for a while. No, no. They raced me back in, and before I knew it, I was on a stretcher, and I overheard the nurse on the phone outside the little ER uh, bed area saying, Do you, are you coming down to get the blood work? And she paused, and then she said, well, listen, if you can't get down here in about 10 minutes, don't bother, because we won't have a patient to draw the blood on. And they raced down. But that was kind of a, you know, you're laying there and you're in, in severe pain. And, and you hear a medical professional say that. Uh, and it really, you know, indication to me that this was a serious business. So I had my, I had my mala. And as they did the testing and whatnot, I did what I would do any other time. I'm not having to focus on something like a conversation. Om Namah Shivaya, Om Namah Shivaya, Om Namah Shivaya. Lord Shiva, I lay this matter at your feet. Om Namah Shivaya, Om Namah Shivaya, Om Namah Shivaya. So um, it turns out it was um, some sort of a blockage in the gallbladder that had re resulted in a horrific infection of the pancreas, which is unbelievably painful. And yet, I had my mantra, and I knew... I kept thinking of my guru's words. I am not my body. I am not my body. I am not my body. He would sit in hot springs and on cold glaciers. Om, I am not my body. Om, I am not my body. I am not my body. I am not my body. I am a node of divine consciousness. I am not my body. And... The pain went away, and the nurses remarked that they'd never seen one, someone in such good spirits with level 9 pain. Well, the pain was still there. It was in those sick tissues in my body. And they were doing exactly what they were supposed to be doing. They were sending my consciousness a signal that the body it's dwelling in has a serious problem that needs to be looked after. Um, but I had the satisfaction of knowing that the doctors were treating the condition. They were going to figure out, you know, there, there was going to be a surgery. They were going to take the thing out and the pain would be of limited duration. So I thought, well, look, I'm experiencing this level nine pain, but really it's a nervous system signal being sent from my body to my consciousness through the brain. I don't need to be any more upset about this pain than I am about the pain of all the other people that are sick in this hospital. It's okay to be concerned that I'm in pain, but not any more concerned than I am for a brother or sister who's in pain. So it put things in perspective. Uh, and it was a glorious thing. And they said I'd be off my feet for three weeks and I was back at the altar doing pujas in three days. Two weeks later, the surgeon said he'd never seen a surgical wound heal like that. So what happened? I took my karma. I experienced the karma. That was my karma, right? That's the fruit of my karma. Nobody else did whatever it was in the past that ended up with that. It was my karma. So I experienced it. I accepted it. I realized I wasn't my body. And... The injury disappeared. It's a glorious thing. This has been such a privilege being able to spend another hour with you. Please do email the station with your questions. They'll make sure that I get the 
the communication. May the great God from whom the Ganges, from, from whose uh, matted locks the Ganges flows, bless and keep you all. Om Namah Shivaya. <laughs>